Well, George Michael sings about it. So does Rage Against the Machine. So take your pick. Mel Gibson screams it with a blue face. And political pundits promise it. Left and right. Freedom. I'm not sure that there's any concept that's more endearing to American sensibilities than the concept of freedom. We, we love freedom. We get emotional about freedom. But freedom's kind of a tricky concept, isn't it? It's a little bit paradoxical. It can be kind of difficult the more we inquire about it. I mean, think about it. Think about the last time you were in a grocery store. Have you ever had this experience and you go into the grocery store and, you know, someone sends you with a list and they tell you, go and get, you know, olive oil. And you walk up to the aisle and there are like 35 different kinds of olive oil. And what happens to you at that point? Do you feel free? You don't feel free. You're just stuck. Like, what do I do? Enslaved by the multitude of choices that you have. I have a friend that every time we go to a restaurant, he takes the menu and he just passes it over to me. And he says, you pick for me. He knows he's going to like it because he knows I have exquisite taste. And so when he passes the menu over, to, I'm just thinking, sitting there thinking like, you look so free right now as I am like laboring over, you know, my fear of missing out on the best thing that they could serve on this menu. That's why when we go to In-N-Out, we feel really free. Right? And freedom is paradoxical. Uh, there's a political theory professor named Leah Upi, and she works at the London School of Economics. She wrote a book in 2021 called Free, A Child in a Country at the End of History. And it, she's kind of diagnosing this paradox of freedom basically through her own story. Uh, she grew up in Albania, the last Soviet holdout. And she remembers in around 1990 walking and hearing the chants of freedom and democracy. And she thought, no, we have freedom and democracy, and the rest of the world is just confused and doesn't understand, and we need to help spread our understanding of freedom. So she would get into these debates with her parents, and then, as she started to find out more, she started to realize that actually they were living under a type of slavery. As she found out that more and more of her Family members were going off to university, which meant prison. Many of them would graduate, which meant death. So then she gets into the Western world and she starts to realize, though, something as she's in the Western world. She starts to realize, quote, that the world the Western world that I started to become a part of was as far from freedom as the one my parents tried to escape. That both of them fall short. But she says that the limitations on a Western notion of freedom are, are more difficult to see. And she says that, that if the more you think about it, 
and all the choices and the grocery store and the paralyzation that's come over collectively our society. She says, we've got to start questioning, do we really want freedom just to mean being able to do whatever you want to do as an individual? Which is how we define freedom in the West. It's this paradox. You can seem to have all these choices open to you and be free and yet it leads to slavery. You can seem to have a limitation of choices and these constraints and yet it leads to this great freedom. Well, years before Leah P, there was Jesus. And in this passage, he is confronting, I think, our notions of freedom and exploiting the paradoxical nature of freedom. First, in verses 31 to 32, he talks about a constraint that is actually freedom. Let's look at it. In verse 31, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In in this portion of John, Jesus is trying to um, distinguish between what are genuine disciples from what are fair-weather disciples. And he says, if, if you want to know what a genuine disciple is, a genuine disciple is someone who abides. Now, that is a very rich term in the Gospel of John, and it has kind of two dimensions. The first dimension is a spatial dimension. Abide has a spatial dimension. To abide somewhere is to live. It's to make it your habitat or your home. He says, my word, my word needs to constitute. If you're going to be my disciple, my word needs to constitute the environment in which you live. I love, like... And I'm fascinated by design and architecture and also just decorating. I know, I break all stereotypes. And I'm always interested in like the way different homes kind of can put off a different feel by having certain environments, right? So you could have like a modern industrial feel and everything around has this kind of um, sealed concrete around it. So everywhere you look, it's kind of sealed concrete. Or you could have a very like woodsy feel where everything you see is like wood around you. Or you think about, we live close to a beach, but those people that really want to go for the beach house look, right? And every little thing you see is like a surfboard or something that says something about sand or salt life or a picture of an ocean or whatever, right? These are the, the vacation rentals that you go to and they just have that. And everywhere you look, the environment kind of, reinforces uh, this motif. Jesus is saying that the home in which you live, the environment in which you live, needs to look around and everywhere remind you of and is undergirded and supported by my word, my teaching. That everywhere you look, it's related to my word. If you want to be my disciple, that's what you need to do. And he's not, by the way, he's not talking about simply about studying, though it does require studying. We know that because back in chapter 5, verse 39, he talked to some some religious leaders and he says, you search the scriptures, you, you study the scriptures, you are studying all the time, every day, day in and day out, and yet you don't abide in me. So we don't need to confuse abiding with studying. Abiding is 
bigger than studying. It's broader than studying. Abiding is to submit to and adopt Jesus' teaching as a way of life. And not just for a little bit. You know, abiding has not only a spatial dimension, but it also has a temporal dimension. It means to remain or to persist in. I'm going on a camping trip in a little while. I I, I go on a camping trip every once in a while. When I go on a camping trip, um, see, I know myself. And one of the things I know about myself is that I am a delicate flower. And because I'm a delicate flower, there's only so long I can spend in the wilderness. Like, I will go for a very limited amount of time for a very limited reason, right? Some of you, you could live your whole life in the wilderness, and I don't understand you. I like, I'll camp out, but I'll camp out only if it gets to me to something that, that wouldn't be possible without camping out. Like, if it's an option, I am not camping out. So I got like four days of not showering, and then I'm at my wit's end. It's not a place where I can abide. I can't abide in living out of a suitcase. Jesus is not talking about taking on his word for a little while or a little bit. He's talking about making it your permanent dwelling place. He's talking about building on it as a foundation of your life. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. Those of you who are here and you're investigating Christianity, this is a very, very important statement that Jesus is making. What he's drawing out is the fact that in order to know the truth, it requires more than intellectual inquiry. It actually requires personal and moral commitment. Just like if you wanted to know the truth about a person, your spouse, it requires more than intellectual inquiry. It requires personal, moral commitment. Jesus says, if you, if you abide in my word, if you take it on, you are truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth. You will come to understand experientially, holistically, what the truth is. And that truth, he says, will set you free. And with that statement, Jesus challenges our modern notions of freedom. Because what Jesus is saying is, if you abide in my word, that is, if you take on my word as a way of life, if you submit to it, if you live under it, if you let it constrain you, you will be free. But of course, that doesn't work with our notions of freedom. That's very odd and in conflict with our notions of freedom. And that's why we say for things like, it's a free country. And what do we mean? When someone says, it's a free country, we usually insinuate, the background is, so you can do whatever you want to do. As long as I can still do whatever I want to do. And whatever you want to do doesn't restrict me from doing whatever I want to do. See, that's our notion of freedom. Freedom is freedom from any types of constraints. But Jesus here says that freedom comes through constraint. How could a constraint bring freedom? Now, years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book called Outliers, and he's talking about very, very successful people, like highly successful people. And in that book, he talks about, he kind of looks at people like Bill Gates or Michael Jordan or the Beatles, and he says, like, how do these people arrive at such success? And then he talks about the 10,000-hour rule 
uh, about those folks are devoted to uh, 10,000 hours of the right kind of practice and devoting themselves to the study and the discipline of learning and falling under the rules of a trade or a skill. Now, it takes more than that, of course. If I gave myself 10,000 hours of basketball practice, I would not be in the NBA right now. Uh, so maybe, maybe it wouldn't be a good analogy to talk about the reason that I can't do what LeBron James does on the basketball court is because he has given over to 10,000 hours of practice. But maybe an analogy that might work better is to talk about my friend Simeon. Pam and I were talking about Simeon earlier. Simeon is, uh, he's a professor at the University of Cambridge. We were in grad school together. Uh, he did his undergraduate in German at Harvard. Before that, his dad was doing a doctorate and his dad was doing a doctorate in, in Germany and he was learning German as a kid. He grew up most of his life, however, in the United States. Then he goes to Harvard, he does German. Then he goes to Cambridge and he studies uh, modern theology, but modern theology means reading a lot of German. Uh, for his PhD, he decided to research a German theologian. So, Simeon is very proficient in German. I, on the other hand, I studied a couple semesters of German in college. I lived in Austria for a year where I learned German. And I then had to do theological German in order to do further studies. Since then, I have hardly picked up a German book or article. So at this point in time, Simeon can write academic articles in German, even though it's not his initial language, his first language. I cannot. Why is he free to do that? Because he devoted himself to submitting to the discipline and rules of German language, grammar, vocabulary, etc. It's, it's why when you submit yourself to learning and discipline yourself to learning the scales on piano or English grammar or ball handling skills or diet and exercise, it gives you the freedom to play and create beautiful music and write beautiful stories and beautiful prose and to climb beautiful mountains. See, it's by submitting to and constraining ourselves to something that we end up being free. So maybe what Jesus is saying isn't so odd. I mean, think about it. What if I just said, picture a free person in your mind. What does that person look like? So when you think, man, they're really free. My guess is that it looks like someone who is flourishing, who is firing on all cylinders, who is using all of their energy and potential to its fullest to create something beautiful in this world. But that ability does not come through the lack of constraint. It comes through submitting to the right constraints. It, it comes to submitting to the constraints that allow you to be who you were always meant to be and how you were meant to be. It's to do what you were created to do. The claim of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is your creator. 
all things were made by him. Nothing has come into existence which did not come into existence through him. And so Jesus is saying, I know how you will thrive. So if you want to know what it means to be free, follow me. Take on my teaching. Make it the environment of your life. That's why we confessed earlier, what is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong to another. That I am not my own, but I am in the hands of another. That I'm under the authority of another. That I'm constrained by another. And what does that bring? It means that, that, that I am under him in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. And that all things must work together for my salvation. You know what that feels like? Freedom. So Jesus talks about this freedom and he's inviting us to take on a new understanding of freedom because our understandings of freedom actually more often than not lead to a type of slavery. Which brings us to our next point. In verses 33 and 34, Jesus talks about a freedom that is actually slavery. Look, verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, the word sin in our, we don't use it a lot in our culture today. And when we do, I think it has kind of the connotation of, you know, doing something a little mischievous. Committing a social faux pas. Uh, Sin has to do with with kind of, um, you know, it's like the, it's the church lady on Saturday Night Live. Sinner. Some of you who are older than me will get that. Others of you have no idea. Don't YouTube it. But, but we get this idea that sin is just kind of doing something a little naughty. You're never going to understand what Jesus is saying if that's the idea that you have coming into this. In the Gospel of John, sin is to live without regard to God's will and ways. It's to live without thinking about God's will and ways. It's to live and to make choices based on what you, who you are and what you want to do and that alone. In other words, sin, in the Bible's definition, looks a lot like our definition of freedom. It's a free universe. So you do you. As long as you doing you doesn't affect me doing me. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And Jesus says here that when you commit sin, when you practice sin, it's actually a type of slavery. Well, how so? Because it looks so free. Well, let me just take an example. Let's take a command, one of the Ten Commandments, one that I've been struggling with lately. The Sabbath commandment. The Ten Commandments, and one of the commandments says that we are to work for six days a week, and then one day a week we are to rest. We're to devote a day to rest and worship. Now, you might feel like you are free when you break the Sabbath commandment. 
oh, I'm free to do this. But why do we break the Sabbath commandment? Well, we might break the Sabbath commandment because we don't think that we're going to suck up all the marrow out of life. We have this kind of FOMO, fear of missing out. Maybe we break the Sabbath commandment because we think if I don't break the Sabbath commandment, then I'm going to fall behind in my work and my peers are going to overtake me. And if my peers overtake me, then I won't get the job coming out of college or out of law school or whatever. Or, or maybe you think, I, I won't be able to provide for my family and I'll fall behind. But it's interesting because that feels like a very free choice. But is it a choice? Martin Luther said that any time we break any of the other commands... We break the first commandment first, and the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, anytime you break the Sabbath commandment, you're breaking a command to worship, to look to something other than God, to be and do for you what only God can be and do for you, like success or money or experiences or community. I, um, I had the opportunity to go on a camping trip, a type of camping trip. And one of this, this camping trip, um, it was people who had been very, very, it was all people who had been very, very successful in life. The top radiologist in Nashville. Um, one, of the, one of the most successful uh, owners of one of the most successful real estate companies in Nashville and that kind of thing. And I was on this trip, and one of the things about this trip is it's a, it's a tech detox. They make you lock your phone in a lockbox, right? And I'm talking with the guys who run these trips. And they said, get this, that they find all the time, almost every trip, people are bringing burner phones on their trips. They'll put a phone in the lockbox, and it's not their real phone, so that they can have a phone with them. I know other people who turned down the opportunity to go on this trip for the simple reason that they could not be without their phone for four days. And they were like, my practice, I just couldn't do that. Are they free? Maybe it's a compulsion. Maybe they're driven by something and chained to something that's not really freedom at all. You know the problem though with it? Most of the time, we don't even know it. One of the first thing that sin does, the most enslaving thing about sin, is that it deceives us. Don't believe me? Just look at verse 33. And the Judeans, most English translations, the Jews, and the Judeans answered and said to Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The Judeans were children of Abraham. Do you know anything about the children of Abraham and how their history developed? They became a nation when they were in Egypt. So you were free there in Egypt? When you were making bricks, uh, making bricks without straw for Pharaoh? And he was whipping you? You were free then? 
Oh, and what about when the Babylonians came and carted off all your leaders and changed their names and changed their diet? Were you free then? You were free then. And the Assyrians, when they came in, were you free then? And what about when the Greeks came in under Alexander the Great and they took over your temple and they started actually sacrificing pigs on your altar? Were you free then? And they made you stop circumcising your children. You were free then, yeah? And what about now? After the Seleucids and the Ptolemies came and reigned over you, now you're free even though Caesar exacts attacks from you and he is crucifying your fellow countrymen left and right on the roads. You're free though, right? You're free. If you know anything about the history of Israel, it is a history of slavery and oppression. We have never been slaves of anyone. You say, well, maybe they're talking about not political slaves. They're talking about spiritual freedom. Okay. But if you read biblical history, what you will see is save for Egypt, every other time Israel was enslaved, they were enslaved because of what? Because they went off and worshipped other gods and sinned and it was a consequence of their sin. And yet here they say, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? That is the most boldly delusional statement. Maybe in the history of statements. And that's what sin does to us. All of us. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says that the first thing that sin does when it encounters a person, it leaps to an opportunity and deceives them and kills them. The first thing that sin does is deceives us. You see, every time we sin, we have already believed a lie. And that is why... The deeper form of slavery, the deepest form of slavery is the person who is enslaved and doesn't realize it. That's what's so sad when you, when you encounter people and they are in abusive relationships and in those abusive relationships, they on the one hand are, are justifying the actions of their abuser as somehow loving. Or on the other hand, when you talk to abusers and they are justifying their actions as loving. Well, I mean, if I didn't slap some sense into them, they would just go off and destroy themselves. So when we talk to people who are in addictive patterns of relationship and, and the most dangerous thing there, the most saddest thing, the most enslaving thing is not the addiction, it's when they are in denial about the addiction because they are deceived. If you listen to Dax Shepard talk about his addiction to alcohol, he'll say, you know, I would just tell people, well, yeah, they might have that problem, but I just have a really strong constitution. Deceived. See, every time we sin, we have already believed a lie, a lie about God, a lie about his world, a lie about ourselves. And one of the biggest deceptive lies, I think, today in which this comes out is in pornography. I don't talk about this much from the pulpit, but it is a massively deceptive sin today. It's amazing the people that I talk to and they'll say, well, I didn't know that pornography was wrong or how could it be wrong? 
It's just physiological. Mind you, they're not even thinking about the fact that like Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins has put out like the link between pornography and sex trafficking. That at least one third of those in that industry are actually involved in sex trafficking. But it's just a physiological thing. I'm not supporting anything. Or then the fact that that, that you say, well, well, what really doesn't affect my relationship with my spouse or my kids? Even though people wonder why they struggle to have intimacy with someone in a relationship, even though they've hardwired themselves to have intimacy without a relationship. But, but it's just physiological. It's nothing. It's just like stretching, going on a run. deception. Every way in which we sin, we have become deceived and we are enslaved. And here's the thing. If you were deceived, let me ask you a question. If you were deceived, how would you know it? Some of you remember the movie Usual Suspects where Kevin Spacey's character, Kaiser Sose, says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. We don't even know it. And that's a very vulnerable place to be. That's a very insecure place to be. So how do you get out of it? Well, lastly, Jesus talks not just about a constraint that act is actually freedom and a freedom that is actually slavery. He talks about a slavery that sets us free. Look at verses 35 and 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is just talking about the common understanding of what it means to be a slave in a household in the ancient world and what it means to be a son. If you're a slave in the ancient world, basically, you, you may have had some protections, absolutely, from your master and that kind of thing. But your ability to, and you had been fed and you might have had shelter, but your ability to have all those things, it has to do with what you can produce for the household. And so when you can no longer produce for the household, guess what? You're out. And that's a very insecure place to be. You get old, you're out. Get hurt, you're out. Not to mention all the other atrocities of slavery in the ancient world. But a son, a son is in a very different place. A son is always a son, no matter what they do. A son has certain rights and prerogatives. In fact, a son has so many rights and prerogatives that a son was able to emancipate a slave. They could go out and they could declare a slave to be a freeman. They could set them free, a son could. Jesus says the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What is your only hope in life and death? That I belong not to myself, but to my faithful Savior. And he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. But you know, to be set free, it requires two things. Two things have to happen for us to be liberated. The first thing is you must be a slave. Who does the sun set free? Not free people. Slaves. 
And so Jesus' invitation to emancipation through submitting to his teaching will only be attractive to those who know that they are enslaved, who realize that, 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 that I can't do enough to get me out of this mess, that I've got proclivities that, 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 that aren't good, that my motives are always tainted and mixed, that, that my desires are for things that aren't for my flourishing or others' flourishing. And I'm a slave to these things, and I need to be set free. See, unless you can admit and see yourselves as a slave, you'll never desire emancipation. So the first thing that has to happen, if you are going to be emancipated, is you have to realize, I am enslaved. And that goes also for us Christians. If we want to be set free by the Son from particular sins, then we have to be able to recognize that we are enslaved to particular sins and say, Jesus, come set me free from this. But it's not just that you must be a slave for you to be liberated. It's also that the Son must become a slave. See, how does Jesus liberate Philippians chapter 2 tells us, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider his divine status, his sonship, something to be exploited for his own advantage, but he poured himself out by becoming a slave. Being made a human, he played the part of a human, humbling self by becoming obedient to death, even a death reserved for slaves. Death on a cross. Don't you see, he became a slave so that we might be liberated. That's why Mark tells us that, that the son did not come to be served, but to become a slave, to serve us as a slave and to give his life as a ransom. That's slave language for many. His life for your life. This is how the Son sets us free. And when the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. So I want to invite you to come to the Son, to abide in His Word, to live in the freedom that He is offering. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.